Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 6, World War II, Einstein, Uranium, and Spies. Last time we left the Belgian Congo, the colony was organised and developed to maximise wealth generation for its colonial power. Companies had been provided with concessions over geographic areas and materials, which enabled them to invest in the apparatus needed to extract minerals and agricultural products for export. In the southwest peninsula, the Katanga region was the extreme representation of this. Huge open mines were dug and track was laid across the lands of the Luba, Lunda and Cooper peoples to Port Frankie to allow ore to be moved by boat along the river to Matadi and then on to the Atlantic. The mighty river Congo and its tributaries, only 60 years prior unexplored by the outside, were now an integrated part of the transport infrastructure. As far as Belgium was concerned, the Belgian Congo was a successful economic and developmental colony. But the positivity of this narrative was not felt by all. Discontent at the colonial situation, support for pan-Africanism, and the idea of African equality with the Europeans were becoming commonplace amongst the Congolese people. Emerging from the camaraderie in the First World War, and fuelled by the voices of Paul Panda in Belgium and the African intellectuals in Kinshasa, the discourse of protest murmured throughout the Congo. Simon Kimbangu, through the word of God and miracles of healing, had attracted thousands of followers to ideas incompatible with the supply of labour to support the colonial endeavours. The state imprisoned him for sedition and sent members of his church to camps throughout the Congo, unwittingly sending his words of freedom to the four corners of the land. This disbursement of people acted as the catalyst for movements in other areas. Thoughts of African independence were growing. But for now, the Belgian colonial authorities were firmly in charge, and independence and pan-Africanism could still not be openly discussed. Political parties amongst the Congolese were banned, and direct challenges against colonial demands were met with direct response. The Pendi people, uprising against a dystopian framework of oppression and pointless labour, were brutally confronted with machine guns. The option of open rebellion was not open to the Congolese. Yet. But outside of this Congo bubble, Belgium was far from in control. On the 10th of May 1940, Germany, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, invaded Belgium. The Belgian army fought fiercely and supported the eastern flank of the Allied troop evacuation at Dunkirk. But ultimately, this did not protect their homes. Just 18 days after the army of the Third Reich had crossed the border, the Belgian king Leopold III unconditionally surrendered. Nearly four weeks after this, on the 22nd of June 1940, France followed suit it too surrendering to Germany in the Third Reich. With the exception of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and the neutral countries of Ireland, Spain and Portugal, the whole of Western Europe was now under German control. The Belgian Congo had no Belgian to report to. What was left of the Belgian government had fled. In this dramatic new world, German military power was visible to all. With both Belgium and France under German control, shockwaves were felt throughout the French-speaking colonies of Africa. The colonial leaders were unsure to accept the Third Reich as their rulers, or to take another path. But occasionally in history, one person can make a difference, 
and in 1940 that person was Pierre Rickmans. Pierre Rickmans was the Governor-General of the Belgian colony, and as the man with overall control, he decided, and against the face of military conquest, that the Belgian Congo would stay loyal to the Allies and to the Belgian government in exile. This was in stark contrast to the French colonies, who initially fell into line behind Vichy France, who accepted German rule. Officially, the Belgian Congo stood with the Allies. On the same day that German and Belgian hostilities began, King Leopold III sought a guarantee from Britain and France for the recognition of the neutrality of the Belgian Congo, and, of course, the integrity of its borders. While Britain and France prepared to fight fascism, the Belgian monarch was manoeuvring to protect his government's colony. He was indeed the grandnephew of Leopold II. Britain flatly refused. They were preparing for war, and France eventually aligned. After German occupation of Belgium, the elected Belgian parliament fled to Bordeaux in southwest France, and then to London, as Vichy France pronounced loyalty to Hitler. King Leopold III, however, remained in Belgium. But this was not a courageous act of remaining in post. Far from it. As far as the Belgian king was concerned, the German victory was complete. His role now was to maintain respect with a view to becoming head of a more authoritarian regime within the Third Reich. He was openly opposed to the now-exiled government and their allied loyalties. The exiled Belgian government granted its Minister for Colonies full autonomy in the direction of control for Belgian Congo under emergency powers. In line with Pierre Rickmans, Albert de Vlieschauer was loyal to the Allied cause. He ordered business leaders with interest in the Congo to move the headquarters to Allied, or at least neutral countries, lest the Germans take control of colonial resources. But here the rift between the government and the king was more transparent. The king had allies in the Congo. Driven by a mix of ideology, and I suspect mostly the preservation of their own interests. They refused the government direction to support the Allies. The Societe Generale, the assembly of business leaders, adopted what it thought was a more pragmatic approach, i.e. accepting Nazi rule. They decided to move back to Belgium as soon as possible. They had to, in their own words, endeavour to ensure the links with the colony in agreement with the occupying forces. To act otherwise, again emphatically not paraphrasing, would not be loyal towards Germany. It is pretty clear that whatever loyalties they held personally towards Belgium or Liberty were second fiddle to their powerful and presumably lucrative positions in the Congo companies. But the British were not going to allow the resources of the Congo to fall to Germany. After dismissing the idea of military occupation, they instead informed of Lieschauer that, should the Belgian government not align with the Allies, they would recognise an alternative set of Belgian politicians who were more loyal to the Allied cause. The Minister for Colonies was boxed in, and after conversations with Churchill himself, he informed London that the resources of the Congo were behind the Allied cause. He issued a decree that all companies in the Congo should disregard any instructions from people in Belgium, and with that, the perceived treachery of Leopold III and the business leaders was totally marginalised. Between Rickmans and de Vlieschauer, the Allies had a powerful accomplice in the Belgian Congo. Its resources, and its manpower, fell in behind Britain, the Empire, and its dominions. But there was another country also interested in the Congo. A new superpower had risen, 
and at the behest of an Austrian scientist, this superpower decided not to wait for the European power struggles to resolve. The United States of America had a very specific, but extremely important, interest in a specific mine in Katanga. Some nine months earlier, in August 1939, Albert Einstein had penned a letter to the President of the United States, no less than Franklin D. Roosevelt. He informed him that he had become aware of a new and important source of energy. And as Roosevelt himself said, when the most famous scientist alive writes you a letter, you pay attention. Einstein knew that in December 1938, two German physicists, Lise Metnar and Otto Frisch, realised that a uranium nucleus, when hit by a neutron, could split in two. At the start of the chain reaction, this converted mass into a huge amount of energy. As early as 1940, two British scientists at the University of Birmingham in England realised that as little as 1 to 10 kilograms of pure uranium would explode with the power of a thousand tonnes of dynamite. No such power of this had ever been thought possible. This had to be controlled, and the US mobilised. The key word in this conclusion was pure. What was needed to create such a bomb had to be free from other minerals. And as Einstein himself pointed out, the purest uranium was to be found, you guessed it, in the Belgian Congo. Initially, uranium ore was obtained from Canada and South Africa, but this was at less than three-tenths of one percent purity. But in Katanga, such uranium concentrations were minuscule. In Shinkalobwe, a mine had fallen into disrepair in 1937, to such an extent that it had been allowed to flood, but the waste material here was on average 65% uranium. 65%, nearly 200 times more concentrated. Some of the ore was found to be as much as 75% uranium. This was the only source on the planet of what was needed to make an atomic bomb in the 1940s, and it had been sorted by hand as waste. Once again, the Congo was holding vast riches in its land, but as recognised only by the wider world. Although the Manhattan Project was started in October 1941, the US knew, even in 1939, that this uranium could not be at the risk of falling into German hands. At the end of 1940, 1,200 tonnes of this waste was purchased and shipped to the US, with an unlimited budget provided to the purchases. But this was not all of the ore, and securing sole Allied supply meant that the United States, for the first time in earnest, would set up significant intelligence networks overseas. Uranium and the Congo were one of its most secretive and most important theatres of operation. This organisation was called the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, and it is one of the precursors to the CIA. So we can see here that the Congo, or its resources, were the reason behind one of the most powerful intelligence agencies in the world today. The OSS was set up in June 1942, and its agents started to penetrate the power brokers of the African continent. Previously, Africa was seen as a European theatre of influence, and although the personnel were trained and capable, there was recognition that there was little African experience within US intelligence at the start. When one agent expressed alarm at being assigned to the African section, he protested that he knew nothing about Africa, to which the response was, well, who does? The OSS worked with the British operation and leaned on their years of experience to a great extent initially, although there was friction in the resources that the US could deploy. 
one British agent complained of their reckless dispensing of money with lavish supplies of resources. The inflationary aspect of this alarmed the British, who complained, As for the police, once the OSS appeared on the scene, it cost as much to suborn an assistant inspector, or even a mere sergeant, as it would once have sufficed to buy up the whole force. Susan Williams's book, Spies in the Congo, details the OSS operation in detail, but for this podcast we can see that the US had started to devote increasing attention to the Congo. They were determined to secure the uranium at literally any cost, and for the first time US military bases were set up across the African continent. This was necessary for the Allied war effort. The OSS notes give us real insight into the business loyalties mentioned above. Many Belgians in senior Congo companies were collaborating with Nazi sympathisers, or were Nazis themselves. Fermin van Brie, a director of Societe Generale, had a meeting with Felician Catier just after Catier had lunch with Hermann Goering in Lisbon. The OSS and the Allies were very aware of these links, and manoeuvred to contain them. Despite some Belgian far-right leanings, overwhelmingly the Belgian Congo's resources were used for the Allied war effort. The United States, the first country to recognise the Congo Free State some 60 years prior, now had an active interest in the colony. The Congo's resources remained critical on a global context. This would continue to have applications with a direct link to important events in about 20 years' time. But during World War II, what did this Allied support mean for the Congolese people? The first thing to say is that at the start of World War II, the Congo population was estimated at just over 10 million people. It had, for the first time, risen above the pre-Congo Free State population, showing a final recovery of, of the abuse under that regime, in population terms at least. But in World War II, the experience the global conflicts brought was a different experience for each individual, depending on their situation. In the rural villages, where the majority of the population lived, the mandatory work days for the government, a form of colonial tax, was doubled from 60 to 120 days. This achieved its purpose and increased productivity, with rubber output increasing tenfold from 1,142 metric tons in 1939 to 11,337 tons in 1944. But this collection invoked reminiscences of the past horror. Van Raybrook dives into the diaries of Vladimir Drakusov, a Russo-Belgian agronomist who was responsible for rubber collection during the war. Drakusov encountered people living in their ancestral lands who still bore the scars of Leopold II's regime at the start of the 20th century, some with missing limbs. People knew of the terror of the past and were terrified at its resurrection, but in the 1940s these had thankfully subsided and short imprisonments were the fate of those who chose, not unwisely, to remain in the village, rather than venture into the forest. Despite industrialisation, the forest remained the same, and leopards and other dangers were still there. Drakusov's diary itself, although written by a European, is telling as it talks of the ultimate independence of the Congolese, which was a well-established but whispered topic at this time. Those in the cities, including the mine workers, were also forced to work more intensively. This was the second largest source of employment, and people in this broad industry numbered up to one million at the end of the war, almost doubling over the time of the conflict. These had fixed wages, but as the war impacted imports of textiles and luxury goods, inflation hit prices owing to supply constraint. 
Effectively, people were asked to work harder for a diminishing standard of living. As with all industrial areas in the world, the workforce were more organised than their rural counterparts, and dissent began to grow. In 1941, adherents of the Kitiwala movement, born of Kimbanguism, as we saw in the last episode, rose up, and they replaced the Belgian flag with a black flag in northern Katanga. In the same year, Union Minier workers rose in strike in protest of their worsening standards of living, which were driven by the economic changes. The colonial authorities took this latter unrest far more seriously. The workers' campaigns were driven by ideology and a genuine campaign for higher wages. As far as they were concerned, it was almost socialism. This was the first open urban voice of protest and was to be repeated in the years to follow. But as with the Pendy people, the last recourse was military power and the force publique, that mix of police force and military might, was mobilised. Protesters occupied a football pitch in the Katankan capital of Lubumbishi, then called Elizabethville, but the soldiers opened fire. In the face of such firepower, the resolve of the protesters evaporated, and the dissent subsided. Many were killed on those sports fields, whose crime was protesting to improve their standards of living. We can also think of the workers in the Shinkalobwe mines. By the 1940s, people were becoming aware of the effects of radiation particularly from the uses of radium. The harmful effects of radium had been officially recognised by a US court in 1938, after factory workers in the 20s, dubbed the Radium Girls, had taken their employees to court over the effects of exposure. Despite initial reluctance to recognise radiation sickness, it had started to become a concern. Indeed, Union Miniere Direct had started to remove the more exotic-looking rocks from their desks, where they were used as colourful ornaments but this message had not been passed to the Congolese. They were often moving highly dense uranium ore by hand and drinking from water which had filtered through these radioactive rocks. Such were the priorities of the authorities and the years of conflict following the independence that these effects were not systematically documented. Retrospectively, though, in 2014, Dr Nkulu Nshenga talked of children born without limbs and other radiation poisoning symptoms. This continues to this day. In his words, people in Katanga know what they and their families have suffered. This requires further attention, but in today's DRC, which we shall come to, this is normally overlooked, owing to more pressing immediate concerns. But for some Congolese, World War II meant that they were asked for their support on the front line. Just as in World War I, the force public was mobilising for war outside of the Congo borders. The first campaign for the Congolese was to join the British, confronting the Italians, who under Mussolini's colonial ambitions had occupied Ethiopia from 1935. In February 1941, 3,000 soldiers and 2,000 porters joined a combined British force of 66,000 troops, drawn from England, India and the African colonies, principally South Africa and Kenya. Italian resistance was weak and surprised at the lack of anti-British sentiment by the local population, the fascist forces surrendered, as the first towns were taken with little resistance. Enemy forces fled so quickly that they left behind tennis rackets and other equipment. After these initial successes at the start of the year, the force public moved as a more individual force, separate to other allied units, towards central Ethiopia. With lower rainfalls than usual, the force stalled for a number of months waiting for river levels to rise, making supplies easier. 
the four survived by foraging and fishing, using the camouflage webs from their vehicles as improvised fishing nets. By June, though, the rains had come, and supplies were resumed. The force public planned its attack, and they advanced towards Sayo, now called Dembidolo in southwestern Ethiopia. In southwestern Ethiopia. Sayo was actually a fortress, and with seven to 8,000 troops, the Congolese were significantly outnumbered. The Italians were also well equipped, with an air force that had continued to harass the Allied force, as well as cannons, machine guns, mortars, small arms, cars, trucks and motorcycles. But this did not prevent the Belgian Congo attack. The Italians believed that the larger British force attacking from Sudan was closer than it actually was, and they had blown the surrounding bridges in defence. They knew there was a larger force in their immediate vicinity, but they were surrounded by hundreds of miles of Allied territory, and they were fully aware of their isolation. On a larger conflict scale, the Italians were an isolated force in a sea of Allied territory, with the British now in full control of the oceans. Initially, they used their artillery to lay down a defensive barrage, in which hundreds of Congolese were killed and more injured. But on the 2nd of July, the Italians surrendered, driving their cars and waving white flags down the hill to the awaiting Congolese. The material and psychological effect of this was enormous. The Allies captured all of the modern equipment that was being used, and this was the very first Allied victory in World War II. For the Congolese, something deeper had happened. The Sayo victory was to World War II what Tabora had been in World War I, but this time the enemy was different. They were all Italians, i.e. they were all European. This was not exhaustively true, but soldiers remembered shooting Europeans, which was a dramatic change to the past, so much so that it was remembered by the soldiers in commemorations taking place 70 years later. The victory itself was commemorated throughout the Congo and streets and memorials were set up in its honour, unwittingly showing how the Europeans were not invincible. This was the most popular victory for the Congolese, but the war did not end here. Afterwards, the force public travelled to Nigeria in West Africa. They were preparing to fight the former French colonies that had declared loyalty to Vichy France. Fighting, however, was spared, as these started, ever the opportunists, to declare for the Allies, as the war was being swung around in North Africa. The Congolese force then moved to Egypt in North Africa. These troops did not fly or go by boat, but travelled overland across 6,000 kilometres of the southern Sahara Desert by truck convoy in a journey which took three months. The troops fought in the desert across North Africa, meeting fellow soldiers from the global expanse of the British Empire. This time, they fought against the Germans. Like Paul Panda all those years before, they had the world opened up to them. They met English, Canadians, Indians and other nationalities and were treated by their fellow soldiers as equals. Other force public units were mobilised and went by boat to Burma, or Myanmar as it is known today. These supported the Allied forces of the British and Colonial 14th Army, the Republic of China and the United States forces in combating the Japanese, Thai and separatist Indian nationalist forces. These were specialist troops and they manned the 10th Belgium Congo Casualty Clearing Station, which treated thousands of casualties during the conflict. So the fighting forces of the Congolese fought the Italians in Ethiopia, the Germans in North Africa, and the Japanese and their allies in Southeast Asia. They were truly part of the global conflict, lest we forget. But as we know, World War II ended in September 1945, 
Congolese uranium was split by neutrons in the two separate atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki of that year, and Japan, the last combatant, was forced to surrender under the realisation that resistance was hopeless in the face of such power. From the first Allied offensive victory to the provision of materials in the atomic bombs, the Congolese provided an important but secret contribution to the Allied war effort. But in these six years the Congo and the Congolese had changed. The country was industrialising, and as with many industrialised workforces, they had become aware of the strength of workers' unity, even though this had been dealt with by brutal violence by the authorities. The people were also migrating to cities in larger and larger numbers, attracted by jobs and the cultural activities there. The proportion of people in urban areas had risen from 16% to 18%, and the towns of Kinshasa and Lubumbashi in Katanga had almost doubled in these years. The nature of Congolese society was changing. The circumstances of the Congo and the veneer of European invulnerability was now broken down. Soldiers had seen that flogging of British and French colonial forces would result in a court-martial, and in the face of their own mistreatment, a hatred of Belgian colonialism started to ferment. Just as after World War I, the Congolese had seen their European rulers as humans at war. It would be increasingly difficult for the colonial authorities to manage these events, in a new world order where liberal democracies had emphatically beaten fascism, and a new anti-colonial superpower, the United States, had risen. It had surpassed the exhausted or defeated European powers, depending on which side they had fought. This is a heady mix of circumstances, and we shall see how the Congolese moved forward in this new environment. Next time, we shall see how world events and Congolese parties for the first time put the spectre of independence firmly on the agenda. We are getting to the latter half of the 20th century, and I remain as excited as ever. We shall see that next time. So until then, safe travels.